0: Hi there, everyone. My name's Kingsley. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Toronto Church. Wherever you are in your journey of faith, welcome. Uh, whatever movie or summer blockbuster hit that Graham had asked you to share with one another, if you didn't get a chance to share I encourage you to find the person you're talking to afterwards, uh, to tell them more about that movie. Spoil it for them, okay? We all love a good spoiler. I'm kidding. I hate spoilers, but. Anyways, uh, we come to a very unique time in our service where we give our attention to the reading of God's Word and the teaching of God's Word. And every so often when you open up the Scriptures, you might come across a text that might be difficult to understand, maybe challenging to understand. And today we come to a passage in Ephesians 5 that is uh, probably considered one of the most complicated passages for us to hear today as modern readers. And so I, I want to encourage you as we read this passage together to come with an open mind and to come with an open heart to hear perhaps what it is that God might have you here today. To so help us with the reading of the scriptures, Haley.
1: The scripture reading today is from Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2, and then 21 to 33. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verses 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the Church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. And thank you, Tariq and Dan, for leaving this passage for me. Uh, When we were talking about having to preach to Ephesians or wanting to preach to Ephesians, I, I didn't say it out loud in the moment, but I said in my soul, God, I'm so sorry for the sucker that has to preach this passage and the one on slavery in two weeks or three weeks. And uh, well, because there's three pastors on roster that can regularly preach here, ordained ministers, uh, the odds weren't in my favor. And uh, I drew one of them. I was hoping for the children one, but Tart got that one. And so uh, let us pray and let me ask God for help today as we open his word. God, we ask that you would give us the gift of illumination here today. We do thank you for your word, though some of us may find it hard to thank you for this word. And so help us, God, in your Holy Spirit to understand the word, to make sense of these difficult things so that we might rightly worship you. God, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Amen, amen. Well, a lot could be said about this passage, uh, and for this passage, it is a difficult one for many. At a glance, many of us can't help but feel that some parts might be outdated or offensive. Others might find it confusing, challenging, complicated. This is felt by people in the faith, exploring the faith, and outside of the faith. And so as we study Ephesians 5 today, uh, not only do I want you to take stock of how you're feeling in this moment, I also want to invite you to take stock of maybe how the Ephesians might have felt. How do you think the Ephesians, hearing this word read publicly, because it was, uh, how do you think it would have made them feel in the moment? Would they have felt confused, perplexed, uncomfortable? Lynn Koick, who is a New Testament scholar specializing in the Christian faith during the Hellenistic period, believes that the Ephesians would have cheered. They would have cheered as the gospel invited its hearers to joyfully Respond and celebrate their new lives in Christ. Cheer. What an interesting response. How can that be? You might wonder. What are we missing today that they got? Well, as we study Paul's invitation for wives to enact a spirit empowered submission and husbands to embrace a life of spirit enabled sacrifice, I think we'll see why we and the Ephesians can cheer. Exploring, first, a life of spirit-empowered submission, and secondly, a life of spirit-enabled sacrifice, uh, my hope is that we'll see that Paul isn't promoting a prisonist philosophy of the past, but rather a glad invitation for Christians to join God and his cast of men and women who'd brilliantly reveal God's mystery that was hidden in the past. What is the meaning of marriage? That's the mystery we want to uncover today. Let's look at our first point, a life of spirit-empowered submission. Here in our text, we read, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And at a glance, this is where most of us get stuck, no? Addressing the wives, we can't help but feel suspicious of Paul in verses 21 and 22. We, We wonder, is this patriarchal propaganda that's being pushed? maybe sexist ideology being spread? One of the challenges of understanding Ephesians 5 is context. See, in most Bibles, if you have a hard copy open, you'll notice that most Bibles start this section as a new section. They put a new heading at verse 22. And this is misleading, because it makes us miss how everything is connected They make it seem like that verse 22 isn't related to 21, but they miss out on the fact that verse 22 actually doesn't have the word submit. It's only verse 21 that does, which means 21 connects to 22. As a result, we miss out the connection and we mischaracterize what submission is and is not. And we miss out on the beauty of God revealed in his word. At the end of last week's text, uh, Paul taught us uh, that mutual submission was was not just for the wives, but actually for all Christians. In fact, it's a mark of the Spirit-filled life. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, what was Paul doing there? Well, he was inviting all members, men, women, children, married, unmarried, no longer married, he was inviting them all to consider the countercultural and powerful posture of mutual submission. And what was the motivation? Scripture says it was Christ. Our reverence for Christ. In ancient Roman culture, submission had a negative connotation, much like our culture today. Uh, submission was seen as an act of the weak. It was for the person of lesser power, prestige, ability, or competency. It usually included the idea of a person in power subjugating a person into submission. Biblical submission is not that, though. Rather, it's a powerfully profound virtue that's empowered by the Holy Spirit of Christ. How is that possible? What happened? Well, the gospel tells us that when a Christian enters into a powerful and personal relationship with Jesus, something changes within them. What they think, what they want, what they love, and how they love, all of that changes. What happens is that life becomes less and less about self and more and more about Christ. What's more, the Christian finds himself entirely satisfied with Christ, so satisfied that one of the implications and applications is that they become free to open up their hands and to open up their hearts to say to God, I'm willing to give up my way. If it means gain for Christ, I'll give up my way. I'm game. Let's do it. Carrie A. Miles, a New Testament research at Baylor University, summarizes the heart of submission when she says, motivated by awe, that is awe for Christ, submission expresses itself in the Christians opting out of the cultural agonistic struggle for honor, prestige, control, and wealth. As we think about how everything fits together not just verse 21, but actually 1 to 21 gives us the general context. We'll talk about the implications for the not married later, but for now, appreciate this connection. What Paul taught in general is actually being applied specifically, in particular, to those who are married. He's not being prejudiced against a specific sex in the church. He's not, being pre- uh, he's not being prejudiced against wives specifically in the church. He's merely helping us apply the general principle in a particular stage of life. That stage is marriage. So, with that in mind, let's now examine what does spirit-empowered submission look like in the unique stage called Marriage. In areas of common misunderstanding, uh, I find clear definitions to be helpful, so uh, let's explore what biblical submission or spirit-empowered submission is and is not. First, what is it not? Biblical submission is not being a doormat. It is not being a wallflower. It is not being uh, one who is merely obedient. It is not agreeing with your spouse either about a given decision. It has nothing to do with competency. It has nothing to do with who has greater ability. What it is, what it is, and if you're taking notes, I wanna encourage you to write this down. What it is, is the voluntary act of coming under someone and working with someone all that God has called you to do. Let me repeat that. Biblical submission is the voluntary act of coming under someone and working with someone all that God has called you to, to do. Where do we get this from? Well, we get the image from uh, the Greek word submit, which, uh, the Greek word for submit, which literally means to put under, okay? The image that this word conjures is the idea of someone coming under something in order to lift it up or support it. Eugene Peterson captures this image in the Message Bible when he renders verse 22, wives, understand and support your husband in ways that show your support for Christ, in addressing the wives, Paul says this because he knows that in marriage there will be times when you'll have sharp disagreements with one another, with your spouse. He understands that there will be times where you'll want to endlessly protest and petition a decision in the family. There will be times when you'll want to argue with your husband over important and good things like family priorities, family values, commitments. In those moments of deadlock where your husband is neither sinning nor contradicting God's word, and where your husband genuinely believes that a decision is for the flourishing of the family, for the sake of Christ, Paul pleads with you, wives, preserve the peace and work with your husbands by voluntarily coming under them and supporting them. Uh, Kathy Keller. Tim Keller's wife summarizes what this might look like in matters of disagreement. She writes, in matters of disagreement, submission would mean me yielding to my husband the deciding vote. I get a vote, he gets a vote. I give him the deciding vote. No one is saying that wives can't argue or protest or petition a husband. No one is saying that wives can't forcefully dispense wisdom to their husbands. But in areas of deadlock, when it comes time to vote, submission means yielding the deciding vote, voluntarily yielding the deciding vote. Moreover, it means working with your husband to make whatever's voted on work. No sabotage, no going behind his back, working with him together. Notice how Kathy Keller says, I give him the deciding vote. Here she highlights the voluntary nature of submission. See, because submission is not something that can be demanded of you. No husband can demand this of you. No man can demand this of you. No pastor can command this of you. Even Paul. Paul actually doesn't even command it of you. You might say, what? He doesn't? What Bible are you reading? (laughs) Isn't verse 22 a command? In the Greek, in verses 21 to 24, Greek scholars observe that not once is there actually an imperative in verse 22 or 21. And there is no form of an imperative being used. There are other grammatical tools that you could use to convey an imperative, but they notice that Paul doesn't use any of those. Scholars also notice that Paul is using what's called the middle voice, the middle voice to ensure we don't misunderstand the nature of submission. Uh, In in English, we don't have the middle voice, uh, but we have the active and passive voice. The active voice in grammar shows the subject performing an action. Um, An English example would be, I am teaching Greek. I'm the subject. The action is teaching. I'm teaching Greek. The passive voice would would have the subject receiving the action. I'm taught Greek, again I'm the subject, the action is taught, I'm receiving that action, I'm taught Greek. The middle voice, a fascinating and beautiful grammatical tool here in the Greek, has the subject acting directly or indirectly upon itself. So there's no confusion, the, passive, or the middle voice, excuse me, would say, I teach myself Greek. Now, what's so impressive, fascinating, and wonderful about this grammatical tool? What it does is it reveals to us a profound fact about submission. It's your choice. Wives, submission is your choice. No one can demand it of you, and you can't demand it of other people. But this tells us that biblical submission is a virtuous gift that you get to give to your husband. I wonder, as you consider this reality, I wonder if you can imagine why the Ephesian wives and women and even the church as a whole might have cheered and rejoiced. In ancient Rome, uh, we know from historical texts and documents that uh, Rome was a proud patriarchal society. In the hierarchy, uh, women, children, slaves, they were the bottom. They were regarded as people to be subjugated, and submission was demanded from them. And Paul says to the church in his time and ours today, no. The gospel says, no, church, no. In the church, there is a new pattern in a new order of power, an order where wives and women have the power and right to choose who they submit to. In verse 21 and 24, Paul is careful not to command submission, rather describing what the spirit-filled life looks like and showing you why you might want to submit. Paul leaves it to you, wives, and says the choice is yours. Sit with that for a moment. Sit with that for a moment. Isn't it wonderful that God would empower wives with such a gift to give in marriage? That God would empower you with a choice to give such a gift? (laughs) Husbands in the church, if you have a wife who gladly cedes to you such kindness, treasure it. And treasure her. It's a gift of grace to you that you do not deserve. You might wonder, well, why? Why should I give up the deciding vote? Why should wives submit? If the opportunity to bless your husband in such a spirit-filled way isn't enough motivation, Paul gives you a greater motivation to consider. And what's the motivation? The motivation is an opportunity to partially reveal a hidden mystery of the ages. That is the real meaning of marriage. Throughout our text, Paul draws a parallel between our marriages and the church's marriage to Christ. In verse 23 and 24, for example, Paul writes, husbands are the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Do you see the parallel there? Now, what Paul means by head in this text is quite debated, uh, but I have found one commentator who is quite helpful. Her name is Michelle Lee Barnwell, a New Testament scholar. And she helps us see that at its core, Paul is making a simple union with Christ analogy. If you're wondering what union with Christ is, uh, what that doctrine is, I encourage you to go back a few weeks to Ephesians 1, uh, where we talked about that. And you can go find that sermon online. Uh, In application, what Paul is revealing here, she says, though, is that God also holds husbands responsible as the primary leader in the family. So there's two things going on here. One is a simple parallel to our union with Christ. Another is to communicate that in that parallel, husbands have a unique responsibility to be the primary leader in the family. Now, by submitting, a wife acknowledges uh, that she recognizes and respects God's assignment. And in addition to this, submission gives the wife an opportunity to paint a partial picture of what union and communion with Christ is like. So this is why Paul says you should consider submission. Submission. You get an opportunity, number one, to partially portray a picture of the gospel, and on top of that, you get to honor God's assignment for the roles that He has casted us in in the stage called marriage. Now, with this image in mind, we do need to be careful not to twist Paul's words and take the illustration too far, because I know in the church it has happened. I know even in this church, sadly, that it's happened. So let me say this. The metaphor between Christ and the church and us in our marriages is not a one-to-one relationship. Husbands do not replace Christ in marriage. Husbands, you merely point to Christ like a shadow that points to the greater reality. Additionally, everything The word everything in our passage in verse 24 doesn't actually mean everything. Everything has a context. Everything refers to only that which honors Christ. Paul is describing, remember in our context, the spirit-filled life, not the spirit-void life. So everything has a context, so you have to remember that. So wives, if a husband presses you to violate your conscience before God or to participate in sin, what you are to say to your husband is, no, resist him. If your husband puts you in harm's way or worse, harms you, resist him. Get away from him and get help. Call the elders of the church, call your small group leaders, call the police if you're in immediate danger, and get help. Because Christ is not an abusive husband, as we'll see shortly. So neither should you tolerate one. Now, with all that said, done right, the opportunity to paint a partial picture of what union communion with Christ is quite remarkable and worthy of your consideration. Because wives, when you choose to submit to your husband, you do something profound for your husband. You model for him what their glad submission to Christ Jesus should look like. On top of that, you model for the church, your brothers and sisters around you, and to the world looking in what submission to Christ ought to look like reenacting the divine cosmic drama between Christ and his church, you get to show everyone what living in peace with the divine prince of peace, the divine prince of peace is like. Uh, Casted by God as Christ's bride in the stage that is called your marriage, we get to see a parable of life. You can say, and we can say, see him with his wife. Parable for life in her life. We see what life with Christ is like. Think about that. Think about what you get to show the world, what you get to show to your spouse. Our first point today is a life of Spirit-empowered submission. As you consider these things, no one is going to command you to do these things, but rather invite you to consider them. We want to plead with you to consider them out of reverence for Christ. Our first point, a life of spirit-empowered submission. Our second point, a life of spirit-enabled sacrifice. As we move on, we'll see that Paul turns his attention to husbands, and balanced and aware of potential abuse, Paul, with apostolic force, writes to the husbands, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now why do you think Paul writes that? A common objection that people have with Ephesians 5 is how it seems unfair that husbands are exempted from submission. And the question that we wanna ask is, are husbands really exempted from submission, from submitting to their wives? One commentator would say, it's a complicated no. That starts with a qualified yes. On the surface, it might seem like so, but it's actually not. See, from a cultural standpoint, scholars believe that husbands could have uh, probably and would have probably dismissed Paul if outright asked to submit to their wives. Remember, Rome is a proud patriarchal society. In a general context, a command like this would have been uh, probably appreciated and acceptable if it was in the church in general. But in the private setting of a marriage, husbands, would have likely written it off as absurd. An explicit request would have been written off as absurd. So what does Paul do instead? Something pastorally brilliant. Avoiding the psychological noise, Paul helps husbands embrace a type of love that's in practice a unique form of submission. Lynn Coeck, who I quoted earlier, summarizes what Paul does. She writes, "In practice, Paul asks husbands to submit in his command for husbands to love to their wives, to love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up to death on a cross that the church may live." Honoring through self-sacrificing, Paul calls husbands to a life of Christ-like submission through sacrifice. Given their primary leadership roles, God helps husbands see what sacrifice looks like in their role. Now, the word I used earlier was call. Paul calls them. And I use that word intentionally because in the Greek, uniquely, uh, verse 25 actually is a command. Paul uses an explicit imperative here. Husbands, love your wives. This is non-negotiable. Wives, you have an option to submit or not. Paul's not gonna force you to. But husbands, because of your unique role, you don't have that option. You must respond to your wife, whether she submits or not, with sacrificial, unconditional, faithful, patient love. You might say, bro, that's not fair. (laughs) How's that fair? Well, think about it. Just as we expect our leaders in general society to be held to a higher standard, as the primary leader who God holds responsible for the family's flourishing, is it not fair that God would hold you to a higher standard and expect something more of you? God seems to think it's fair. Men, husbands, your professional job may demand more on the surface, but that job will never challenge you the way that this job will. In our culture, power in leadership is seen through the lens of one's ability to control others, but the kind of leadership that husbands are called to is fundamentally different from that power that we see in the culture. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Submission and authority are not mutually exclusive in the kingdom of God. And Jesus shows us that. And so in your marriage, with your assigned role from God as the primary leader in the household, you must display that. You must honor that. Enabled by the spirit of God, you must honor that. So brothers, husbands, love. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. You might ask how? Well, how do I do I do that? Paul gives us two guidelines, two words to help guide us in verse 28 and 29. The first word is to cherish your wife. The second is to nourish your wife like you would your own body. Cherishing means treasuring and protecting at all times. This is publicly and privately. Nourishing means feeding that which gives life, health, and strength. And in verse 28, uh, we see here that loving yourself is loving your wife. The words aren't, it's like loving yourself. It is loving yourself. Loving your wife is loving yourself. If you need reflection questions... I find a couple of these to be helpful. These are questions that I had to ask Hannah uh, in this past week and uh, I encourage you to even ask your spouse this week as you reflect on what this might look like for you because in practice, different circumstances might have different applications and implications. So husbands, take note of these. Wives, ask your husband these questions afterwards. The first question I want to ask, and I want you to ask is, how have I been cherishing and nourishing my wife emotionally? Patience, compassion, empathy, sympathy, are these things I practice regularly? Another question is, how am I cherishing and nourishing my wife spiritually? Verse 26 talks about how Christ perfects the church through the word. He talks about how the goal of marriage, the purpose of marriage, is to sanctify the church, to beautify the church, which you, husbands and wives, are part of. So how are you doing this together? Husbands, how are you leading the family in this together? Prayer, study of God's word, participating in the life of the church, these are key habits for flourishing, for growing together. So reflect on that together. How have we been doing that? How have I been leading the family in this? Lastly, how have I been cherishing and nourishing my wife physically? Have I created a space that makes spirit-empowered submission easy for my wife? I said this past week uh, that my wife and I had to have these questions. This was one of the ones that I had to ask. Was I making it easy for Hannah? Thankfully, she said yes, praise God. She also then followed up with a few things that I could do to improve. (laughs) Have I created a space where it makes spirit-empowered submission easy for my wife? Have I created a space where my wife can easily share ideas and grievances safely? How have I been cherishing and nourishing my wife physically? For those husbands with young children, here's a very practical one I want you to consider. And wives, you're welcome, because I know you want me to ask this question. How have I been helping my wife get physical rest that she needs in this season of life? I know children are tiring, I have a little one of my own, but husbands, how can you sacrifice for your wife to make that stage a little easier? How can you cherish and nurture and give her life in this season physically? I know this is hard, because more often than not, it means we're staying up later, we're waking up earlier, and we're playing a lot more than we might want to with our children. <laughs> but it blesses her, and encourages her, and it gives her the strength she needs to carry out her role in the family as well. You might ask, well, why, why should I do this? You might ask, why, why should I sacrifice myself like this then? Is it just because God says I should? Well... Some might say, yeah, that's why you should, but that's a terrible, terrible motivator. In fact, uh, Paul gives you a better motivator to consider instead. The better motivator is to consider what God does through you and in you when you sacrifice yourself for your wife. What does he do? He uses you to provide the other half of the mystery that your wife reveals in her partial portrait of the gospel. He reveals a full picture of the gospel for all of us to see. Through our wives, God shows that there is one worth submitting to in this life. Not you, the husband, but the greater husband, Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom of the church. And through you, husbands, through you, God shows us that there is one who loves with an unimaginable, infinite love in this world. When you sacrifice and sacrificially love your wife, you model for her and the world, Christ. You show the world the Savior who takes away the sins of the world. You model for the world that there is a love that overshadows all loves. There is a passion that surpasses all passions, and it's the all-surpassing, heart-stopping, white-hot love of Christ for the church. Let me tell you this. This is the love that the world has been longing for, dreaming for, searching for, hoping for, aching for. And husbands, wives, together, you get to show the world where this love is found. You get to show the world how we get to respond to this love. You get to show the world the gospel. For those of you investigating the faith, I want you to see that God heard and hears the longings of your heart. He sees your aching heart, and he knows what you're searching for, and he's given you marriages. Marriages to reveal what it is and who it is that you really want. It's Jesus. Jesus is everything that you never knew that you wanted We dream in this world of finding a love that would walk miles for us, that would give its time for us, that would die for us. And God says here, look to the gospel and look to my son. Look to my son who gave his divine time to you. A cross of shame he bore for you. A spear to his side he bled for you, pinned with two nails to his hands and feet he took nails for you. A crown of thorns, he wore for you. Coming from heaven, he died for you. Bearing your sin, your shame, drinking down God's wrath, which was worse than a bullet to the brain. Jesus endured all that pain. So that you, you might rise and you might bless his name. For those of you investing in faith, Jesus is everything, everything you never knew that you wanted. And so can I encourage you, can I plead with you, receive his love and respond to his love by submitting to him. For Jesus is everything that you never knew that you wanted. As we wrap up, I wanna close by talking to those of you who are not married. Maybe you're longing to marry or no longer married. Perhaps some of you aren't even interested in marriage. Either way, I I wanna thank you for your patience today uh, because I understand that these sermons are difficult at times. Marriage sermons, sermons about marriage can be difficult. I remember one day as a young single man hearing a pastor preach on this and feeling forgotten, feeling invisible, feeling less, less complete. I felt incomplete. If this is you, I want you to hear something. Ephesians 5 verses 21 to 33 is also for you. And that when God wrote this passage, he had you in mind also. He had you in his heart he intended for this letter to be read to you along with all the married people in the church and so let's explore what does this all mean for you what are the applications of ephesians 5 for you all of them start with an e and so if you're taking notes this will make it easy for you oh another e word the first one is embrace embrace god's love for you embrace god's love for you many of you have bought into the lie That life doesn't begin until you get married. And that's not true. Marriage is a metaphor that points to a greater reality, to the spouse that your soul longs for. It's not a human person. It's a God and human. God-man. Jesus Christ. So that means when you entered into a relationship with Jesus, your life began. And I want you to hear that. I want you to know that. I want you to embrace that. Don't make light of this by thinking that you're somehow incomplete because of your marital status. Jesus made you complete when you got married to him in faith. Embrace God's invitation to you is the second application. Embrace God's invitation to you. Uh, You might not have a stage called marriage to live out these things that Paul is teaching here, but you have a bigger stage called the church to play a part in. Uh, Paul's instructions in verses 22 to 23 come from the general context of verses 1 to 21. If you look at verse 1 in your bulletins and you look at verse 21 and you compare that to 22 and what you see in 25, you'll see that the language is actually mirroring each other. And what God wants you to see is that you have a stage that you can participate in and play your part in. It's a stage called the church. So I want to invite you to consider what does submission look like for you in the church? What does it look like to submit to one another in the church? What does it look like to sacrificially love one another in the church? Cuz God wants you to embrace his invitation to you. The next one is encourage. This is our third application. Encourage. Encourage the married to joyfully play a part play their parts, excuse me, in their marriage, encourage the married folks to joyfully play their parts in marriage. This means you need to engage the married, to pray for the married, and to challenge the married to portray Christ and the church in their marriages. Married folks, this means you need to welcome the not married into your lives. You need them more than you know it, and they can encourage you more than you would dare believe. Encourage the married to joyfully play their parts in marriage. Lastly, esteem. Esteem esteem God's purpose for marriage. We saw here today that God has a purpose and a picture in mind for marriage. So for those of you who are looking to marry, when you look for a partner, I want to encourage you to look for someone who will work with you in painting a full picture of the gospel one day, not a partial picture. Practically, this means dating outside the faith is not advised, it is not wise, it is not recommended. I know, I know this is hard to hear, but remember, what we want is a spirit-filled partner, not a spirit-void partner. And so esteem God's purpose for marriage. Out of reverence, esteem his purpose for marriage. As we close, we looked at a life of spirit-empowered submission and a life of spirit-enabled sacrifice. This is God's invitation to you to consider. So I invite you to go to the Lord and to consider these things. Amen. Let us pray. God, we ask you for your help today we ask you for your help to to consider your word, to weigh your word in our hearts, to maybe even help us rejoice in your word. God, in the coming weeks as we wrestle with these things, God, we ask that you would help us ask good questions with our spouse, and that we would learn for those who are married to know how to honor you in these ways and the roles that you've given us and the stage you've given us. For those who are not married, God, we ask that you would help us, you would help us to know how to encourage, embrace, and to employ these things that you've called us to employ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, uh, at this point, normally we would do Q&A, but uh, Graham's going like this, so I think he's saying he's gonna cut my head off if I do Q&A. And also there's a giant red sign saying, we're overtime, no Q&A. So I'm gonna listen. I'm going to submit to my church leaders here. And uh, if you have questions, I know this is a difficult topic, so please do ask your questions. Um, I'll invite you to email me at kingsley at and I would be so happy, so happy to interact more with you individually about these things. Um, at this time, I'm going to invite you to rise for the song of response and we'll sing together.